We finished our series in Colossians, and uh, we started that back in September. It was a good, good series, a good book. This morning we're going to start a series in the book of Philippians, and uh, kind of working backwards through this little section of small books that Paul wrote. We did Colossians, Philippians, we'll do Ephesians and Galatians after that. And uh, our text this morning and our text next week will be the same, uh, because this morning I'm going to start by doing a kind of a bird's eye view of the book of Philippians. Uh, we did this with Colossians and Proverbs as well. We do kind of a survey of the whole book, kind of get a, an overhead view of everything. And then we're going to start next week in verses one and two again and begin to slowly unpack everything that the book contains. So this morning uh, will be largely just an overview. Uh, we're kind of going throughout the book of Philippians to see what is being talked about. The book was written by the Apostle Paul in 61 AD, or right around 61 AD. He's writing from prison in Rome. The city, Philippi, is located in Macedonia in modern-day Greece. It was somewhere around 7 to 10 miles inland from the sea, but it uh, it was right along a major Roman road that ran through the city. Um, And so it was a very important city for trade and for commerce uh, in its day. A few interesting details about this letter. Go ahead and turn to Acts 16 real quick, Acts 16. Paul started this church on his second missionary journey. We see that in the book of Acts chapter 16. Could you bring me down just a, just a touch on that? I appreciate that, thank you. Acts 16, 12, the Bible says, from, then, from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. This is when the apostles first come to Philippi. Uh, some of the early converts of Philippi, well, one was Lydia, if you remember her. She was a seller of purple. They went out by the river to find a place of prayer. Uh, in Jewish culture, you had to have 10 men in order to form a synagogue. They did not have 10 men in Philippi to form a synagogue. And so those who gathered to pray to God gathered out by the riverside, and Paul went out there and he found them. And the Bible says the Lord opened her heart to receive those things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. So she was one of the very first converts in Philippi. And another famous convert we see in Acts chapter 16 is in verse 30, and that is the jailer. Remember Paul and Silas were jailed in Philippi. Uh, They uh, began to cast out demons in this girl who was being used to make money for the merchants there. And and, uh, so they cast the demons. So then they they brought them before the city, and the city arrested them and put them in prison. And Paul and Silas, if you remember the story, they sat there and they cried and they wept. No, they didn't. They sang praises to the Lord, right? And at midnight, an earthquake came, and, and the doors were all open to the prison. And Paul did what every Christian should do in that situation. He didn't escape, Right? He didn't escape. He said, don't, don't hurt yourself. The jailer's going to kill himself. Back then, if you lost your prisoners, you were going to die. So he, th- he thought they all left, and so he's going to kill himself. Paul says, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And that famous line, he came in and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Get baptized, join our church. Do penance, pray to Mary. No, he didn't say that, right? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And he went to his house, and they preached the gospel to his house, and his house believed, and they were all baptized. And you see how this little church of Philippi 
begin to form in Paul's journey there. Lydia is saved, and this jailer is saved, and who knows, the Bible doesn't tell us everyone else who was saved out there by the river besides Lydia, but there probably was others that were saved as well. And this little church begins to form here. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. Let's look at a few things about this church that I think are of interest to us. Philippians 1.28. The church, at the time that Paul is writing to them, is under some kind of intense persecution. 1.28. Paul says, And nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Don't you love the way that Paul words these things? It's given to you. What a gift. Church, you realize we've not been taught this in America. In America, we've been taught comfort and ease, right? And the better you have it, the more blessed you are. Oh, what a blessed nation. We don't have persecution and suffering and all the things that come along with other nations who follow Christ. Paul says... You're not being made to suffer. It's been given to you. It's a gift. Paul is trying to encourage these Christians in the persecution and saying, you've been given a great gift from Christ. You guys want to know my honest feelings on it? America is not blessed because we're persecution free. We're not. We should probably be jealous of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for Christ. You realize that when you see in Revelation, the martyrs are the ones who are brought closer to the throne of Christ, right? There's an honored place for martyrs. There's an honored place for those who suffer for Christ. And so while I'm not trying to say we should force persecution to come to our country, I would say that we're not blessed because we like persecution. Paul says to the Philippians, it's been given to you. Now, you say, how do you know that that's a good gift? Because he lumps it in with believing. It's been given to you not only to believe, but also to suffer. Both are gifts. He's saying, church, in Philippi, God is blessing you with persecution. You get to know Christ. You know why? In persecution, we come to know Christ better. Right? We fellowship in his sufferings. You'll never know Christ like you do in times of suffering. Never. You will never know Christ. Amy Carmichael, the missionary, last 20 years of her life, she spent bedridden, an invalid. And she'd tell people over and over again, she never knew Christ like she knew him in those 20 years. He who suffered for her. And so while we look on debilitating diseases, right, as bad. I'm not saying I, I invite those into my life. But yet we're given a great gift when we suffer. Johnny Erickson Tata is a great example of that. Paralyzed in a wheelchair all her life since she was a teenager. You ever hear her talk? She's never known Christ like she has from that wheelchair. And she wouldn't go back and change it, she says, for a million dollars. 
because she's come to know Christ through physical suffering. Fanny Crosby, who went blind as a baby or as a young child, never got to say, how disadvantaged, especially in her day, right? The blind didn't have the advantages they have today. But she rejoiced that God did that to her. She ever blamed God? She said, the first thing I'll see is the face of my Savior. She took it as a gift. God's given me this gift. He's blessed me with suffering. We've got to stop pretending. It's such foolish worldliness to pretend like suffering is a bad thing. Suffering for Christ is never bad. It's a gift to be received. People today, Christians, they see the the persecution on Christians today. They see the way our society is. And they say, oh, boy, I wish we lived back in the, you know, the old days. When it was fashionable to be a Christian. But you know what? You know what that created? That created the world we have today. Where everyone called themselves Christians, but nobody actually was. And they didn't raise their kids to follow Christ or love Christ. And those kids grew into adults who today are the perverts we have in our, our society today. Listen, rejoice that you live today. Rejoice that you're a Christian in 2023. It's a gift. Well, I'm going to suffer more than my parents. It's a gift. Well, I'm going to suffer more than my grandparents. It's a gift. And Paul is writing from prison himself and not prison like we have it today. Let me tell you guys something. Prison today is still, it's no cakewalk. I've been in prisons to minister. It's not a cakewalk. But compared to what Paul is going through, in a dungeon, chained to a wall with rats and filth, not given baths, not given meals regularly, beaten by, that. this is the Roman prison system. It is not what we have today. And from that prison, he says, you and I have been gifted the chance to suffer for Christ. Receive it, church, receive it. Don't be upset about it. Receive it as a gift from God. Chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, even as it is meet for me to think of this, think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. Paul is saying in that verse, his bonds, which he was in, his prison, which he was in, for defense of the gospel, that's why he was locked up, because he was preaching the gospel, is a grace to him. And they who are being persecuted are sharing in that grace. It's a grace from God to suffer on behalf of Christ. It's a mercy from God. Do you know why the church in America is the way it is today? Because America has been free for too long. We have been comforted too long. Comfort never brings godliness. Suffering does. Remember Exodus? The more Pharaoh persecuted the Jews, the more babies they had. The bigger they grew. The blood of the martyrs, they say, is the seed of the church. The more they persecuted the church, the more the church uh, would thrive and grow. Someone said for every martyr they burned at the stake in the Middle Ages, they created 100 converts. For every martyr they, they burned, 100 more professed Christ because they saw 
the patient endurance of the saints who were being murdered for their stand for Christ. Paul says, this is a grace, and you're sharing in it. Rejoice, church. He didn't pity them. There's no pity party going on here. If Paul had been a modern-day American evangelical preacher, he would have wrote them a letter and said, Dear Church of Philippi, I'm so sorry to hear. So sorry to hear of your troubles. I'm just so, you guys are in a bad way. Maybe you should think about moving somewhere else, somewhere where there's more freedom and where Christians are liked better. Maybe more uh, accommodating political preferences. Just, you got you to get out of there. It's really bad. Paul says, rejoice. You're sharing in the grace. Receive this as a gift from God. He's like, you, are, you guys realize there's people over here who aren't suffering? Shame on them. Boy, they've got it bad. <laughs> but we're sharing in Christ's suffering. Church, nobody, nobody who shares in the suffering of Christ will ever regret it. Ever. They'll never look back on their life from glory and say, oh, I wish I had more ease. I wish it hadn't been so bad. Let me tell you this morning, Paul, he was martyred. He has no regrets. Peter, Matthew, John wasn't martyred, but they boiled him in hot oil. They tried. Polycarp, Jim Elliott. I can just go through naming martyr after martyr after martyr. And I promise you, if they could be allowed to talk to us from heaven, none of them would regret a thing that they suffered. But millions of people, millions of American Christians who lived in this country between, let's say, World War II and, I don't know, 1990, millions of them who lived during the era of the greatest comfort for Christians in America will regret their lives. Wasted lives. Because they were comforted into oblivion. They didn't live for Christ as they ought to. They didn't have to. There was no price to pay for being a Christian. They could take it or leave it. I want you guys to see this morning that suffering for Christ is a great gift. Don't give up because somebody hates you. Or ridicules you. Or spits on you. Or even if they slap you in the face. I've been out street preaching twice with people who got slapped in the face while street preaching. You know they did? They picked their glasses up off the ground they got back to preaching the gospel. And they're still preaching today. Years later, about 10 years later. You know why? Because it's a great grace to suffer for Christ. If persecution turns you into a denier of Christ, then maybe you didn't know Christ in the first place. Those who follow a crucified Savior cannot hide from the cross. Those who follow the suffering man, the man of sorrows, we cannot escape sorrow ourselves. It's a gift of being part of Christ. We're united to Christ. Where this letter differs from other letters of Paul is that there is no false doctrine or church-wide sin to deal with in Philippi. In Corinth, you had a rampant fornication, uh, fornication, fornication, that was a weird word to say, fortification. I, have, I, just, I just spoke in tongues. Who wants to translate? In the church of Corinth, there was rampant fornication. There was abuse of the Lord's Supper. There were church members suing one another. 
In Colossians, you had Gnostic false teachers who were drawing believers out of the church, spreading their heresy. Galatians, you had legalistic false teachers within the church who were telling them you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to truly be saved. The church of Philippi seemed to be a very godly, spiritually strong church, and I credit most of that to their suffering for Christ. Those who suffer for Christ cease from sin. They don't get involved in sin. Not that they were perfect, but they're not going to meddle in sin. They're suffering on behalf of Christ. They're being purged and, and cleansed through their suffering. It's a very godly, very spiritually strong church. Paul is not writing to correct their behavior, but to encourage their faith. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's encouraging their faith. Be confident. The work that Christ has started in you will be completed. What a, what a, what a blessing for us to understand that. You know, what God has started, if you're truly saved, what God has started in your heart, he will bring to completion. That means our sin will not ultimately overcome us. Though we struggle with sin, it will not win. Right? I love that, that bridge from Romans 7 to Romans 8, where Paul's dealing with that, that inward sin in chapter 7, right? I don't, you know, the, the struggle of the inner man, really what it is, struggle of the two natures. And then the end of chapter 7, he cries out, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? It's just this cry of frustration. And then chapter 8, verse 1 he says, there is now no, therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So while it struggles, it will not overcome. While it's there, it will not condemn us. Your sin will not win. Your persecutors will not win. The work that Christ began, he will finish. What is that work? Building his church. He will complete the work. Don't worry about your persecutors, he's saying. Don't worry about that. Christ is doing something. He has a plan. He's accomplishing something, and he'll complete what he's doing. Caesar is not going to stop him. The local authorities will not stop him. No government today will stop him. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's promised that. The true church. Right? A couple, remember a couple of months ago I differentiated there's the, there's, that, there's the visible church and there's the true church. And you, you know there's the visible church and the true church. It's much smaller than the visible church. So when people declare the coming end of Christianity, I say yes, absolutely, of the visible church. The false professors of Christ will be overcome. But the true church never. There's no threat. I, mean, I saw Christians online who were worried about that article about the coming end of Christianity. What are you worried about? Has Christ forsaken his promise? Has he abdicated his throne? No. So while they're suffering, Paul says, hey, you're suffering. Receive it as a gift. And by the way, what Christ started in you, he will finish. You're not going to lose. You realize that Christian martyrs, even when they lose, they win. Just like Christ. What was Christ's greatest moment of defeat? Undoubtedly, the cross. 
What was Christ's greatest moment of victory? Undoubtedly, the cross. Right? He disarmed the principalities and powers. He won at the cross. While he looked defeated, he won. And Christians the world over, they look hunted and persecuted and defeated. But they're winning. There's that famous, uh, I love how Doug, Doug Wilson says it better than I can, but there's that famous uh, men who were, it's a wonderful story, really. We need to look, watch it one of our movie nights. But uh, uh, Hugh Latimer and uh, I think it was Thomas Ridley. Thomas, is that? Latimer and Ridley, they were two martyrs of the Catholic Church in England. And uh, they were arrested along with uh, Thomas Cramner, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, Cramner actually recanted his faith at threat of death. Latimer and Ridley refused, and they went to the stake. And as the story goes, now don't, don't get me wrong, Cramner was a very godly man who had a momentary lapse of judgment. And he watched his friend's boldness as they were burned at the stake. And he got on his knees and he repented and boldly proclaimed Christ and took back his, his recanting. And he too was burned at the stake. But as Latimer and Ridley were being burned at the stake, their prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And I wish I'd gotten the notes down, but one said to the other one, he was kind of fearful approaching the, the burning stake. And the other one said, basically, take heart. Take heart. We win. We win. I don't have the exact, I didn't get the exact quote for you. I should have brought that up here with me, but we win. In other words, as Doug Wilson says, basically what he was saying was, we got them now. <laughs> They're burning to the stake, and we got them now. We're going to win. We've won. Tonight we'll be in heaven with Christ. We've won. And by the way, shortly thereafter, England joined the Protestant Reformation, rejected Roman Catholicism, and became Christian in answer to their prayer. I think the fire that lit that Reformation was those two men who approached their death boldly and said, we're going to win. They're going to burn us, but we're going to win. In church, the world is out there, and they're loud. I understand it. They're loud. They're loud. And they got their big rainbow flags. And they shout us down, don't they? They're loud. But they've already lost. We're going to win. We're going to win. If they take this from us, we'll, we'll go meet in a field at a park somewhere. Because we're going to win. And they put us in prison. We'll sing praises at midnight like Paul did because we're going to win. Ours is not a position of defeat. Ours is a position of victory. Too many Christians fight the battle as if we're fighting uh, uh, from, from a position of defeat. Like we're in the defense. We got the ball, to use a football metaphor. We're on offense. We need to start attacking this world and stop reacting to their attacks. We should be on the move. We should be the ones shouting them down, not with hateful rhetoric, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they can't stop it. They cannot stop the work that God is doing. What God has started, he will finish. What a comfort to a, a, a persecuted church like Philippi. What a comfort to them. 
This church had been a big supporter of Paul's ministry. He commends them. Look at chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Philippians 4, 16 and 17. Paul says, For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again into my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. They supported Paul financially on his missionary journeys. They sent him gifts even in prison. That's what this whole letter is about as he received a gift from them. He's thanking them for the gift that he received. Even here in prison, they had sent a gift by the hands of Epaphroditus to minister to his needs. Verse uh, 18 of chapter 4. But I have all in abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Now you understand what he's saying there, church? Be a giving church. I don't just mean in the offering plate. I mean to one another, to other Christians, to those who are being persecuted to traveling street preachers like the Apostle Paul. Paul just didn't just say, by the way, your gift was a blessing to me personally. He says, your gift is a sweet-smelling odor to the Lord. It's a sacrifice to Christ. When you give to Christ's work, you give to Christ himself. It's a sacrifice. It's an offering to God. We need to stop being so earthly-minded and be heavenly-minded. You realize that when you put gifts in the offering this morning, although we don't see it in our, phys- our physical world, a sweet smell went up to the Lord. You realize when a Christian has a need, not too long ago, Olivia was stuck in a chicken place. And people ran to her rescue. And you know what people driving down the street couldn't see? That sweet smelling snack odor going up before the Lord. As Christians lay down their lives for one another, you realize that as we help one another, serve one another, love one another, support one another, that is an offering to the Lord. And it will be rewarded in heaven. It will be repaid on the day of resurrection. God is no one's debtor. He'll repay. He'll repay. Paul had been preaching even in prison and had won a number of people to Christ who served in the royal palace. Verse 22 of chapter 4. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Say, Pastor, what do we do when the day comes we get arrested for being a Christian? Preach to the household of Caesar. Preach. Witness. So, I don't, we oversimplify the Philippian jailer, right? Um, we were on a, a teen trip one time to San Francisco. And we had a young man in the youth group who was very ambitious, but not without, without knowledge. He wasn't even a Christian. He's, not, he's a pagan today. But he wanted to be a preacher at the time. And so we're on a cable car. He's living on the street and he's just yelling at everyone, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And I tried to tell him, that means nothing to pagans who don't know much about Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Paul said it. So you know why Paul said that? Because Paul had evidently been preaching to this jailer for hours or days. Right? The, the, the heathens, especially back in this day, before the Bible was out, now Christian vernacular is pretty common, but back in these days, people wouldn't know what the word saved meant. So when he walks in and says, what must I do to be saved? That means Paul had been talking to him about being saved. Yes. Paul had been preaching to him. 
And when he came in, he came in saying, oh my goodness, what he's been saying is all true, and I need to receive it, I need to accept it. It wasn't just this one-off phrase, it was part of the whole message he'd been giving him. So when you get arrested for Christ, preach Christ! You realize people in Caesar's household were being saved. I mean servants and maids and butlers and drivers and whoever else were in his household. Prison guards were being saved. You realize that, well, if you, let me, let me slow down here. I'm getting excited about it. We have a tendency when Christians get arrested to blame the Christians. And sometimes it's true. I, I watched a video not too long ago of a guy being arrested, a street preacher, and everyone's like, oh, no, pray for him. Oh, those cops. I, I, I watched the video. He was a jerk. They weren't arresting him for Christ's sake. They are arresting him because he's a jerk. Right? Bill Adams, the sportsman outreach, always tells us when we go to places with him or a Super Bowl, he always says, I'll bail you out of jail. Just when you call me, I'm going to ask you, do they arrest you because of Christ, because they hate Christ, or because you're being a jerk? If I bail you out, it better be because you were arrested because they hate Christ, not because you were being a jerk. So sometimes it is. But more often than not, we say, oh, what a waste. What a waste. They should have just not done that. They should have gone preaching. They should have done this or that. Listen, sometimes God has people in prison for a reason. Paul was in this prison to reach those people that probably never would have been reached. You realize that those who lived within the royal palace probably... Unless they were the ones who came out to shop in the marketplaces and stuff, they probably didn't leave the royal palace very often. I mean, it was like a compound that they lived in. It wasn't just one house. It was a whole property, and they didn't go out much. They, they probably wouldn't have heard the preaching out in the marketplaces, out in the streets. And so God sent Paul in there. He met Onesimus in prison. God sent, we, we went there by Philemon, didn't we? God caused whatever happened between Philemon and Onesimus to happen. He caused Onesimus to escape. He saw Onesimus safely 200 miles, 100 miles to Rome. Let him commit a crime there, get arrested, and end up and tied up somewhere next to the Apostle Paul. None of that's coincidence. That's, that's providence. Right? Pray for those who are in prison for the gospel's sake. God has them there for a reason. Don't just pray for their release. Pray for their effective preaching in prison. Because you know what? God has people in Biden's household that need to be saved. He has people in the California State Prison System's household that need to be saved. And the Florida prison systems and the jails and so on. People who need to hear the gospel. See, I don't believe you. Okay, let me give you a story. When I was ministering in the prisons, I met a prison guard who got saved. Okay, here's the reason why he got saved. Typically, the guards were not in the chapel with us. But occasionally, especially if a Christian uh, guard was on duty, he'd slip in the back and, and listen. This guard was not a Christian, but had grown up in church. And he'd hear the preaching from outside. So finally one night, he goes, I, I walked in, I sat in the back, I listened to the message, and I couldn't get my grandmother's church out of my head. He goes, the next Sunday, I went and visited the church, and I got saved. God has people everywhere that need to be saved. So be about preaching the gospel. 
Back to the church. While there isn't a false teaching problem in the church, Paul does warn them to be on guard against it. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Be on guard. Listen, every church needs to be on guard against false teaching. Our church needs to be on guard against false teaching. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God and the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He tells them to beware of the Judaizers who would seek to impose their religious rules upon them. This is a danger that we face everywhere today. Even today, much of the professing church can be divided into two extremes. You have one extreme, that's the antinomian ground. Lawlessness. You, you, you ever heard those churches? Uh, no rules, just a relationship. I actually saw a church one time that had that slogan. No rules, just a relationship. What kind of a relationship doesn't have rules? You know, my, my wife and I have rules. We have a relationship. And we have rules. I can't run around with other women. She can't run around with other men. There's rules. It's not a relationship. It's, a, it's an abusive relationship if there's no rules. But see, we have these churches today that want this... This, uh, oh, we just, we don't, we don't, we don't have any, just love Jesus however that means to you. That's dangerous. We're to love Jesus as he's commanded us to love him. Well, worship Jesus however you feel comfortable. It's not about us. It's about him. Revelation, we see these people in Revelation 4 and 5 gathering around the throne. They're worshiping. What you don't see the guy on the throne say is, Take it easy, guys. Just each one, however you see fit, go ahead and do it. There's order to their worship. It's biblical. It's grounded in who is on the throne, not as who, who is worshiping. So he warns them. We have those churches today. They're, they're just antinomian. They just, no rules. Do whatever you want. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a relationship with Christ, but there are rules to that relationship. He demands fidelity, loyalty. He demands all of us. There is no half-hearted Christianity. And I, I keep saying that in my prayers sometimes, praying for the half-hearted Christians, but there really are no half-hearted Christians. There isn't. There's full Christians, full-on, full-hearted Christians, or there's deceived people. This is not a half-hearted Christianity demands our full lives. And there's the other extreme. They're the legalists. The ones who want to find their righteousness in the good things they do. Or in the suits they wear on Sunday. Or in the kind of Bible they carry around. I remember, I remember being in the church one time and they gave me a hard time because my Bible was red or burgundy instead of black. Because everyone should carry a black leather Bible. And say, well, they were—they were kidding. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Because I, I got up to preach one time, and the pastor switched my Bible. I go, here, you need a real Bible, a black leather Bible. Wouldn't let me preach out my burgundy leather Bible. I'm telling you that, that those churches exist today. Well, that one doesn't anymore, praise the Lord. But they do exist today, and they find their righteousness in what they do. And they would say, oh no, 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 we're saved by grace through faith. I've told you guys how I, I spent years trying to please God outwardly by doing all the religious stuff. 
And during those years, I would say, I believe in salvation by grace through faith. But I didn't. I hoped. I hoped that my clothes, I hoped that my church attendance, I hoped that my being an usher, I hoped that my doing this or doing that would commend me to God. It will not. Much of the fundamentalism I grew up in is about finding your righteousness or nearness to Christ in what you do. We must find our assurance in the same place we find our salvation, in Christ. In Christ. Uh, Our work should flow, definitely, from the inner work that Christ is doing in our hearts. But listen, don't trust your faithfulness to be an indicator of your salvation. There's a lot of faithful people. There's a lot of faithful Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a lot of faithful Mormons. There are some faithful Catholics. A lot of them are are not faithful, but there are some. There are faithful Buddhists, faithful Hindus, faithful Muslims. Faithfulness to a religion does not assure that we're saved. It doesn't. Paul was a faithful Jew before he was saved. The true danger to Christians falling into works-based righteousness is we find our assurance in the works that we do. Don't look to your faithfulness for assurance of salvation. Look to the inner work of Christ in your life. Look to Christ for your salvation. Look to Christ for your assurance. Has Christ changed your heart? Is there a a notice that you say, I'm not the same person I was before I was saved? If that's you, you're saved. Say, well, I still sin. I have these sins that I struggle with. Great. Do you struggle with sin? Then you're saved. Do you sin without a struggle? Uh Without conviction? You may not be saved. Has God changed your life? Do you love what God loves and hate what God hates? Are you growing in righteousness, not just in your outward conformity, but are you growing in your inward man? Does your heart desire to be more righteous? Does your heart desire things it never used to desire? The things of God. That's where our assurance comes from. We look to the inner work of the Holy Spirit. That's where we find assurance. A lot of Christians struggle with their salvation assurance because they've not changed. They just started being more Christian. There's the problem. There's the problem. If you sin without a struggle or conviction, if you don't love what God loves, including the church, right? Many professing Christians live outside the church. They're not part of a a biblical church or any church. I've had people say, I have Jesus in the Bible. It's all I need. Baloney. You're part of the body of Christ or you're not. If you don't need the church, you don't need Christ's body. You don't have Jesus either, by the way. Some do this by barely or rarely ever coming to church. Some do it by attending large mega churches where they have no accountability. They just kind of fall in or fall out and no one notices. Oh, I go to church. A church of 10,000 people and no one knows you're there or not there. Some just have a take it or leave it attitude to the church. I knew a lady once 
she'd take her kids to Wednesday night youth group, and they had an adult service. And she'd drop her kids off and sit in her car and play on Facebook. You know why she did that? Because she had no interest in the preaching of the word. She's on the property of the church. But rather than walking 20 yards inside to sing and to hear the word, just disinterested. I did my Sunday time. I'm done. I'm done. And those kids, they only went because it was the youth group and there's fun and games and prizes and food. As adults now, they don't serve Christ in large measure. Maybe one or two of them, but they don't serve Christ. Someone like that, I would say, should not have much hope in their profession of faith. If you're disinterested in the preaching of the word of God, or singing or worship at all, I don't have a take-or-leave attitude towards church. You say, well, you're the pastor. You have to. I wasn't always a pastor. You know where my family was when there was church? In church. Not because we had to. We wanted to. Yes. We wanted to be among God's people. That desire should be there. This is Paul's most personal letter that he wrote. He deals with not only a warning against false teaching, but against internal strife. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, if there, be any, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Unity in the church is so important to the Apostle Paul. So important. Church is not a place for big egos or self-fulfillment. It's not a place for power grabbing. It's not a place for agendas or self-will. Christ is the preeminent one in the church, which he guides to the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we stay unified in the church? Lowliness. Lowliness of mind. What does that mean? Humility. Esteeming others better than ourselves. Not assuming bad motives on the part of somebody else. Well, <laughs> Earl shook my hand this morning, but he wants something. <laughs> and Gloria, I don't know. It doesn't assume bad motives. Thinking less of ourselves and more of others. That's loneliness. Meekness. That's best described as power under control. Not being given to anger. Long-suffering attitudes. That'll solve a lot of problems. Boy, Maisha really offended me. That's it, I'm out of here. So people do. Or instead of saying, you know what? She offended me, but she didn't mean it. She didn't even know she offended me. I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to love her. Because I probably offended her at some point and didn't know it. I'm going to bear with. That's what long-suffering means to bear with. To bear with. 
people. See, we live in a cast-off society. Right? We don't fix pants anymore. We just don't wear buy new ones. We don't, we don't mend shoes. We just, we, just take, we just throw it away. We get something new. And we treat church the same way. All right, I, they offended me. I'm leaving. Well, I got mad at that person over there, so I'm leaving. Isn't church a family? You realize I can't get mad at my wife and just leave. We're family. We bear along with each other. Church is a family. You want unity in the church? Be long-suffering. Love one another. Think low of ourselves. Think more of other people. To be long-suffering means it takes a whole lot to get you angry. Most people who leave the church today get mad over one thing, and then they're out of there. One thing. I was, I've used it before. I love this example. My, my grandmother, she had two different pastors. Well, she had more than two, but she had two different pastors, and both of them she got mad at. And both of them, as far as I, as far, as far as I understand the story, she, she had a right to be mad. They messed up. What's funny is this happened when I was a child. I was maybe two and then maybe ten. Two different pastors. I never heard about it until I was a grown-up. They didn't go home badmouth the pastor. Didn't tear him down. Didn't talk about it in the car after the end of the church. We never heard about it. In both situations, she went to the pastor after church and she gave them a piece of her mind. And she said, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong in what you did here. That was ungodly. That was unbiblical. That was, that was you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, she went, you know what happened after that? She came back to your Sunday night and Wednesday night and taught her Sunday school class and loved the pastor and supported the pastor. She got mad. She let him know it. And they moved on. They both ended up apologizing to her later on. But the point being, she didn't leave the church. God had brought her there. She had no right to get mad and leave. Or to treat him badly once she shared her thoughts, once he apologized. There was, no, there was never hard feelings. She had all those pastors come back and preach her funeral. Paid for out of her own will to, to preach her funeral. There was no, there was long-suffering. That was love. That's biblical. There was never disunity in the church because she got mad at the pastor. She got mad. She spoke her peace. They apologized. And they went on loving each other. That is Christian unity. That is laying down your life. That is lowliness of mind. That is long-suffering. That is how a church should be. Let me move on. I can stay there for an hour. And I will when we get to that part of the, <laughs> of the book. We're to forbear with one another. Another important part of unbroken unity, bearing with someone you don't like or someone who offends you. You guys realize, I'll be honest about it, my, my wife knows, there were people in our last church that I did not care for. I didn't like them. Our personalities clashed. We didn't get along. I mean, we greet each other and good morning, but we didn't really have any much social interaction. 
I didn't like them. Some of them didn't like me. You know what we did? We went to church with them for 12 years. You know why? Because we didn't choose a church based on our personality, our likes or dislikes. Because those change. Those are fickle. They're finicky. You ever had someone you liked and then you didn't like them? Or you didn't like them and then you did like them? We were where God put us. And even though we didn't like some of the people there, we worshiped the Lord there. And at least one of those people, I say they shouldn't know who I'm talking about, boy, we didn't, I mean, we just, but then God brought us together, opened our hearts. I ended up being in his wedding. We became friends. You know why? We, we were bearing with each other. We were long-suffering, and long-suffering turned to love and friendship. That's church, folks. That's the body of Christ. Don't just cast people off who offend you or you don't like. We do this, Paul says here, out of love. The reason church splits happen every time is because one party doesn't love the other party, where both parties don't love each other. Love between Christians never brings strife, and it never brings disunity. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That word endeavoring tells us it's work. It's hard work, but it's worth it. It's worth it, church. It's not easy, but it's right. So let me go back and deal with these themes chapter by chapter. We're almost done, I promise. I know we're... This has gone longer than I promised my son it would. Chapter 1, encouragement in the face of persecution. Chapter 2, unity in the church. Chapter 3, warnings against false doctrine and testimony to the power of the resurrected Christ. And number 4, contentment in the Christian life. This is a major point the modern church needs to hear. Contentment in the Christian life. Christians should be content, not greedy. Not to live with our, our eyes on what we have or what we want. But on Christ, we're called to trust the Lord, to share what we have, to be content with what we have, and to seek the kingdom of God and others' good first. I was going to have you turn, but we're too late into this. I'm just going to read you some verses. Write these down. Matthew 6, 19-21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For your treasure is there, will your heart be also. Write down Matthew 6, 24-34. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor for yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. 
For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-8, through But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. And one more, Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Contentment is so necessary for the Christian. And today, even the church is being taught more and more and more. Prosperity gospel. God wants to give you that BMW. He wants to give you a house twice the size of your house. He wants to fill your bank accounts. Baloney. Listen, the gift that God wants to give you is not a Ferrari. It's suffering for him. So Paul said in chapter 1, receive it as a gift. Receive it from the Lord. You've been gifted the privilege of not only believing on Christ, but suffering for him. Reject the prosperity gospel. And by the way, it comes in subtle forms. It's not always the big TV preachers. There's a lot of people, a lot of churches who believe. If you just serve God, good things will come to you. Go to church and God will solve your problems. I'm having marital problems. I'm going to start going to church. I lost my job. I'm going to start going to church. Or I lost my job. I go to church. Why is this happening to me? We don't go to church. We don't serve Christ in exchange for goods and services. We don't. We don't do that. We love and serve Christ. And that brings us suffering and persecution. And we love and we serve him more. Though we lose everything. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he slay me. Even if he, uh, I was thinking about the uh, three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And if not, we're not going to worship your idol. We're not going to bow. We're not going to bend. We're not going to compromise. Even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. Philippians, like Colossians, is very Christ-centered. Our lives belong to Christ. Dying is gain because we will be present with Christ. Chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 1, verse 23. For I am in the strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. We maintain unity by thinking like Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We see a theme of the absolute lordship of Christ in chapter 2, verse 10. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see the necessity of the righteousness of Christ, chapter 3, verse 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. We see the theme of the power of Christ and his people. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. By the way, that does not mean win the Super Bowl or get the job. It means suffer persecution and want and famine and prison and still say, blessed be the name 
of the Lord. That's the meaning of that verse. Our application for today. If I had to sum up the message of Philippians, I'd say it's sevenfold. Are you guys ready now? We're 55 minutes in. I got seven points. I think Joe Sinclair would be proud. That was a good introduction. We're going to go through them quickly. Don't worry. Number one, suffering we encounter in this life on behalf of Christ will not go unnoticed by Christ. It will be fully repaid. We will sit on the other side of glory, having suffered in this life, and we will say, worth it, worth it. What is it uh, in that parable where Christ talks about girding himself and serving us one day? And what did the servants say? No, no, no. We've only done that, which is our duty to do. Nothing spectacular. There's been no sacrifice here, Lord. It's the least we could do. Number two, what we experience after death is far better than what we have here and now. Say, what's heaven like, Pastor? I don't know exactly. But Paul went there. He came back and he said, it's far better. I believe him. Far better. Number three, unity in the church is hard, but it's worth it. We accomplish this by imitating Christ, having the mind of Christ, thinking like Christ, humbling ourselves like Christ. Number four, we press on in this life to know and experience the power of the resurrected life in Christ. That's what Paul said. I press on toward the, the mark of knowing. He wanted that resurrected power. Are you struggling with sin today, Christian? Press on to know the power of the resurrected Christ. That's where we overcome our sin. Do you have doubts today? Press on to know the power of the resurrected Christ. That's where our doubts fade away. Power in Christian life over sin, power in prayer, is part of sharing in the resurrected life of Christ. Number five, Christ is all to his people. Find contentment in Christ. He's everything. We need nothing else. Number six, be generous to God's work. It's a sweet-smelling savor before the throne of God. And number seven, set your minds on what is good, pure, holy, lovely, of good report. Now, what falls into all those categories? Christ does. When he says, think on these things, he's telling us to think on Christ, who is lovely and holy and righteous of good report. Set your minds on Christ. Set your hearts on Christ. I look forward to getting into this book. That's just a bird's eye view of what we're, what we're going to experience in Philippians. There's so much for God to tell us in this book. Lessons that we need to learn. Let's learn them together. Amen. Let's pray.